It's time to put principles ahead of politics. This is Sages of the Sun, brought to you by the New York Sun. I'm Caroline Veek, a co-founder and editor of The Sun, and I'm joined by Seth Lipsky, our legendary editor-in-chief. We're here to take you behind the headlines, unblinkered, principled, and straight. Let's get started. This week, we will be sitting down with our chief foreign correspondent, Benny Avni, and Shay Katiri to discuss the protests sweeping Iran, Iranian aggression in the region, and Biden's rapprochement with Venezuela. Shay, why don't you tell us a little bit about a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, and uh, and some of your experiences, and then jump in. So I grew up in Iran. I was there until I was 22, and during the Green Movement, I was involved with that quite seriously, and ended up being kicked out of uh, college because of that. And I left Iran in 2011. I went to live in. Budapest for a couple of years and then I came here, did college again and studied strategic studies at Johns Hopkins University, SAIS. Since then, I've been working as a freelance writer and as a uh, contractor on issues relating foreign policy. Interesting. And and where in Iran did you grow up? It's called Gorgon. It's uh, southeast of the Caspian Sea, up north halfway between Meshad and Tehran. So it's close to Turkmenistan border. Fascinating. And so and so the protests now, from your perspective, what are they about and, and what's really happening? So so by the way, I, I should add that during the Green Movement, I was actually in, co- uh, in Tehran going to college. So I spent a few years in Tehran before leaving. The protests uh, since... 2017. Uh, 2017 was the first time since 2009 that a huge wave of protests happened. And some sort of demonstration, small or large, has always been there since 2017, pretty much. And they're happening because people are miserable. And they're also happening because the regime has lost any legitimacy. Prior to 2017, the regime kept arguing that the problems the people faced were due to sanctions and uh, Iran's frozen assets. And also, more subtly, and also people within themselves would argue that during Khatami, who was president in the late 90s and early 2000s, was a reformist. The, the situation was not that bad. And it became really bad under Ahmadinejad, who was a hardliner. So people kept uh, excusing the behavior, uh, the problems for by arguing that, well, it's a hardliner, it's Ahmadinejad who's in power. After he leaves office in 2013 and the reformist comes back uh, in the name of Hassan Rouhani and JCPOA happens, Iran the regime becomes quite rich immediately after the sanctions are lifted and everything got worse and there was no excuse left anymore for the regime. And that did did a lot. Why did it get worse at that time? Well, one is just that's, uh, that's the nature of any totalitarian corrupt regime because it, it is a centralized corrupt economy and it just cannot deliver such an economy, even in the, in the best best case, but also 
in the case of Iran is extremely corrupt. And number three, because most of the money that arrived from JCPOA went to foreign policy and to the military and to terrorism and to strengthening Iran's proxies. And the even the amount of, that was spent uh, on the people was mostly spent in Tehran and not outside of Tehran because the I suspect the thinking was that if we spend this money on Tehran to keep the people of Tehran happy, the regime will not collapse. The regime ha- the regime will collapse if Tehran actually, uh, if the capital is taken over. So long we keep the capital, it's fine. So outside Tehran, people saw no change, uh, no positive change, I should say. And even in Tehran, the positive change was uh, very minimal and uh, quite uh, quite uh, temporary. So everything got worse and the regime is just out of excuse. And even after the sanctions are reimposed by the Trump administration, it was too late to return to sanctions as a justification for the problems because the three years of uh, operational JCPOA had done the trick for them. And so the spark now, is, is it food prices, in your opinion, as, as we've been hearing, or what's happening? There's food price. There is last time in 2019, there was gas price. There was, before that, there were uh, labor protests. Earthquake handling. Excuse me? Earthquake handling. Remember Earthquake the earth- hand- Yes. So, but uh, I recall when in 2019, the largest and most threatening protests in Iran's history happened. A lot of English media and foreign media said that they were gas protests, that people were on the streets because of the price of gas, because of the hikes in the price of gas, which was true. It had tripled, but that was not the first time that there was a sudden multiplication of the price of gas in Iran. It had happened many times. I remember when I was there, uh, I think it quadrupled uh, suddenly. And people didn't jump out to the street to protest the regime. These are the uh, triggers that cause the protests. The cause of the protest, these are the triggers, the cause of the protests are just the everyday problems that people have. And somebody, in fact, it's very easy to make a comparison to, and it's correct to make a comparison with Tunisia and uh, with the protests that happened there during the, and started the, uh, the Arab Spring. Just as easy, some guy, uh, some street vendor sets himself, himself on fire, and that's what causes the, the protest. But the problem uh, for Ben Ali's government in Tunisia at the time was that people hated the regime, ben, uh, ben Ali's regime there. And it's the same problem that Iran's regime has, which is people just hate the regime and they look for excuses, uh, look for triggers to pour onto the streets to express discontent. So it is true that the price of food this time is the problem. It is also true that uh, there were water protests a year ago. It is also true that there were labor strikes. It is true that there were gas prices, uh, gas price protests, but those are just the triggers. And this time, it's not only the price of food. There's also the issue of uh, 
the regime encouraged people to invest in the local stock market, which has collapsed, which means every, everything that they ever saved was just lost. Yes. And on top of that, there are other financial problems that are not as often reported. For instance, uh, many people who had, so Iran has very high interest rates. And because of that, if you have a savings account, you get a huge uh, interest on your savings. So many people over the past several years have put money into, have put some large sums of money, those who could afford it, those who had those kinds of money, put large sums of uh, uh, money in their savings accounts to live off the interest that is paid, that is paid back. And then many of them, most of these are either state-owned banks or oligarch-owned banks, so still state-owned. And they went bankrupt, they don't have money, and they refuse to pay back the money to their customers. So there are all kinds of structural uh, problems in Iran's financial system. And yeah, and people, but at the end of the day, I want to re-emphasize this. It's a political protest. It is not a it is not an economic protest because the the structure of the regime and the core values of the regime could not be more different than the people's preferences. Uh, you see a sudden hike in the popularity of the Pahlavi dynasty over the past several years. And that is not an economic statement. That is a political statement because what does it say that we like the enemy you toppled. That is not a, an economic statement. Or you see <clears throat> in their chants, if you uh, track the slogans of the protests, principalists, reformists, game's over. This is one of their uh, chants. This is, again, not an economic protest, if you see what they're saying. <clears throat> or neither Gaza nor Lebanon do something for us. This is a protest against Iran's foreign policy. I would argue it's probably both. I mean, in the sense that people who were, who had very strong ties to the uh, regime and and not even strong ties, but, you know, were somehow, uh, be, somehow were benefiting from the regime's uh, uh, largesse or whatever, and, and were tied economically to the regime, all of a sudden lost their money. And all of a sudden, and even if you're a revolutionary guard person and your mother can't buy bread, you know, that changes your political affiliation. Then you go to the other side at one point. And so both, both the, 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 the mishandling of the economy by the regime and the hatred of the regime for other reasons, they, they, they both feed each other. Oh, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. But, but my point is that uh, uh, if the economic problems, among other reasons, have brought the people to the conclusion that the regime is beyond reform, I think that's the, that's the argument to be made here. That, uh, that, I mean, there are polls, there are surveys mostly done by a Dutch-based uh, polling center, Gamon, that shows that uh, most pe- a majority of people want either 
a sudden overthrow of the regime or a large majority or a transition uh, is a slow transition away from the regime. But there is a around maybe a quarter of the population who believes that regime is redeemable or that it is acceptable in its current form. Uh, if a vast majority want change, uh, want structural change. So we have that. And on top of that, we have, we have uh, evidence of increasing and extreme secularization in Iran that only a quarter of the people uh, are Shiite Muslims self-identified and who's living under a regime that's a Shiite theocracy. So that's another indication that we have. Shay, how, how have those polls changed over time? Has religiosity um, dropped quickly or what is, what, what is that, how has that evolved? So we do not have accurate polling until the recent years. We cannot tell for, we cannot say for sure how it is. How it, uh, excuse me, how it used to be uh, in comparison. But I can give you, I guess, my eye test uh, and a few anecdotal stories for what is worth. People, I when I was growing up, uh, among my relatives, later among my friends in high school and in college, uh, the extent of religiosity was usually among the middle class, especially uh, that. Yes, I like Imam Ali, and I like the prophets, and I'm also, um, I'll, I'll drink most of the year, but not during the holy months. That was the extent of religiosity among the middle class, among the working class people I went with, to college with, uh, could be a bit uh, more serious than that. Uh, but when I talk with people who used to be like that, or friends who are still in touch with uh, more religious uh, people, and I asked them, all of them have given up. All of them have given up. None of them believe. So these are transitions that I, I have witnessed myself into secularization. Fascinating. So, so I'm hearing from you that, you know, that the protests and the, and the political discontent has sort of been a continuous process. Is now, is this wave different in some way or, or should we sort of consider it as more of the same? I, I am, I have a very grim view of the future. I do not think that uh, we will see regime change anytime soon in Iran, no matter how strong uh, the anti-regime forces are, mostly because the regime is still far more powerful than the people. And the regime has sent every signal and made every indication that they are not ready to give up on power. Thank you for listening to this sample of Sages of the Sun. To listen to the whole episode and access our entire catalog, Go to NewYorkSun.com. That's NYSun.com.